Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Fox Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Fox Nomad, Anil Polat. We've got a guest today on the podcast, Dr. Daniel Lieberman, a professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University, and also the author of Exercise, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And some of the things that are covered in the book are, if we are born to walk and run, why do most of us take it easy whenever possible? Why is it when you're in an airport and you see everybody going up the escalator and like two or three weird people walking up the stairs? I'm one of those two or three weird people, but why do we do that? Why even when the escalator is so packed full of people, why do we just, why do we do that? Why don't we all take the stairs? Some other questions in the book, does running ruin your knees? Should we do weights, cardio, or high-intensity training? And is sitting the new smoking? We talk about how our biology and how our evolution has sort of really kind of led us to want to sit. So we want to, sitting is natural. <laughs> being Maybe being a little bit lazy is 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 pretty natural, it, it turns out, and how we can combat that and what types of activity actually help us. We talk a little bit about the confusing information that we have, a lot of the paleo diet, we talk about that, and a lot of these new sort of the advice that we're getting that's quote unquote, be more natural. But Dr. Lieberman talks about and really goes through in the book what natural is, what what, what did our ancestors do, what do hunter-gatherers now do, and how we're not all that different, we're actually coming from the same evolutionary past, and, and the people in the past weren't all superhuman. So we talk about all of that. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode um, with Dr. Lieberman, and I, I know you're going to really enjoy the book. So I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Again, it's called Exercise, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. But now here's my interview with Dr. Lieberman. Thank you, Professor Lieberman, for, for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, I enjoyed your book because it combines two of the things I really love, which is anthropology, especially human evolution and exercise. And this notion of that we have in the Western world of trying to be more natural, which I think is kind of a fad now. Um, so, and I think your book touches upon all of those things and it changed how I think about so many things. Um, okay. I'm glad to hear that. So you start out the book with, talking about trudging a treadmill up to Pemja and how that made you realize that we're, we didn't evolve to exercise, which seems kind of counterintuitive, I think, to a lot of people. Well, actually, um, it wasn't that, that, that event really was really more about my realizing just how absurd treadmills are um, um, and how strange and modern they are. But, um, and that that actually happened um, while I was finishing the book, um, and I just realized it would be the perfect sort of introduction to the book. Um, but um, no, my my kind of a sort of aha moment, if there ever was one, um, was really before I started the book when I was um, uh, interviewing some Taramara runners in Mexico and 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 asking them about how they train after having just been at, at Ironman in Kona, the, Iron, the triathlon championships, which is a pretty incredible endurance race. And, and I was, you know, talking to these amazing um, um, uh, runners, because um, in this culture, people running is a really important to act. Uh, it's kind of a form of prayer. And they do these long distance runs and, and yet nobody trains. And I was asking people how they train and they said, and one guy, um, this elderly fellow asked me, why would anybody run if they didn't have to? <laughs> and, and it just, you know, kind of, 
was that one of those little moments where you realize, yeah, okay, yeah, of course, right. Just like reading exercise, that is, you know, physical activity for the sake of health and fitness, you know, discretionary, voluntary, unnecessary physical activity is a really modern thing. And until recently, nobody really thought about physical activity that way. Yeah, and it's when you point that out in the book, it made me realize, oh yeah, wait, this is not normal. I mean, what we're doing is going to the gym, you know, if we do go to the gym at all, lifting some heavy weights for just for the sake of lifting them, it seems weird. And then I would, you know, because in my head, I think, well, you know, our ancestors have always been doing this strenuous exercise and lifting and running and fighting bears or, you know, whatever <laughs> ridiculous stories. But it seems like we're not that different than hunter gatherers in terms of our natural inclination to kind of stay still if we can to, to conserve calories, it seems like. Well, we're the same people. I mean, you know, I mean, our, our lives have changed uh, in, in most part, almost everywhere on the planet because of agriculture and now in the industrial revolution. But deep down, we're all the same. And, and we all have a, the same sort of basic fundamental instinct, which is that uh, you know, when it's possible to save energy and to take it easy, uh, we do so unless, you know, unless it's, it's either necessary or rewarding, right? So people for millions and millions of years, like animals and, and you know, other, other species, right? Humans um, take, you know, have to be physically active in order to survive, in order to get dinner or be, avoid being somebody else's dinner. And, and we are also physically active when it's, you know, rewarding, like, like dancing to playing and, you know, things like that. But, but, um, but going for, you know, I just, I just use the, the, it's a horrible icy day here. So I used the, okay. an exercise machine in my basement. And I, you know, worked out really hard for like 25 minutes, but that's a really weird thing. Nobody did that until recently. Uh, yeah. Cause it wouldn't make sense. You know, it wouldn't make sense if, if getting food is difficult, you know, calories are difficult. That's sort right. of in, you know, why would you burn calories that you don't have to? Well, it's not only that it doesn't make sense. It's actually a problem, right? Because when calories are limited, you know, uh, you 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 have to make alloc you have to make trade offs, right? So you can't spend a minute more than once, right? If you spending this minute listening to this podcast is time that you're not spending doing something else that might be valuable. So and and, and until recently, calories were also limited, like time. And so if you spent a certain amount of calories on on unnecessary physical activity, those were calories you didn't spend on taking care of your body or reproducing or or growing or all the other things that are really important for natural selection. So um, so we have to you know understand that, that those instincts, those trade-offs um, are sort of woven into our biology. And so even even so the, 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 the example I like to give is imagine you're in a, in a, in a subway stop or in a mall or an airport and you see one of those escalators next to a stairway, right? Of course, there were no escalators in the Stone Age, but that little voice inside of you says, take the escalator, right? And that's because it's normal to, 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 um, to you know, to, to not do unnecessary physical activity. Sometimes we, our, our rational part of our brain takes over and says, no, 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 you're better off taking the stairs. But that's a modern choice that we have to make that people didn't used to have to make. Yeah. And it's kind of amazing that we're not all, that we can survive in the modern world. And after reading your book, I sort of think like, it's, it's in a way amazing that we don't all just balloon up with how many calories that we can get access to, you know, it, it... Well, we do actually, <laughs> um, you know, um, about two thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. So, um, and that's, you know, that's part of that's it's much of that is diet, not exercise, but exercise plays a role in that for sure. 
And speaking about diet, you, you, you talk about this hunt that, that you joined. Um, I, don't, I don't recall quite which group you were with, but it was an unsuccessful hunt for antelope or elk or some sort of meat. Um, and then the hunters just ended up eating. They just went and found honey beehives and just smoked out the bees and ate a whole bunch of honey. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and I thought, well, sugar, we, we're told, is bad. And so this seems counterintuitive to me. I mean, obviously, in that situation, it's different. But it just makes me think that, you know, you know, how, how does that balance with the things that we're sort of told? Like, if if this seems to be the norm, you know? Well, one of the, the silly things about the paleo diet is this idea that somehow whatever our ancestors did must be optimal for us. And I use the word optimal with quotes around it because... Uh, optimality is actually a very difficult thing to define. But anyway, um, and you know, again, what natural, the only thing that natural selection cares about, what's optimal from natural selection's perspective is how many offspring you have, right? So more energy means more offspring. Uh, that's, that's the equation of life, food in, babies out, right? And um, so, uh, so hunter-gatherers, their favorite food is honey, you know, um, they, they don't, because that's the only really sweet thing they get, right? And they, they can't go to the corner store and buy, you know, Mars bars or donuts or whatever it is that, you know, sweet things that you might like. And so the, honey is it. And so they'll eat ridiculous quantities of honey when they can get their hands on it. Um, and, um, you know, they're also very physically active and the, the rest of their diet is generally extremely healthy. So, uh, so it's not really a problem. Um, um, but, um, but again, they're not thinking about, gee, I, I, don't, I want to avoid getting diabetes. They're, they're just like, they want calories and they're, they're working hard to get them. And we, we inherit those same cravings, um, those same, you know, sugar is a very addictive substance. And, you know, you, 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 you develop a taste for it in, in utero and, you know, children love sugar and adults love sugar. We all love sugar. It's, the only difference is that now we live in a world where we've made it hyperabundant, right? We actually pay extra money to have sugar removed from foods um, that has previously, you know, would otherwise be added. So, um, yeah, so, so it's, it's part of this just sort of paleo fantasy thinking that, that just because our ancestors did something, it must be, must be good for us. The other part of the paleo fantasy thinking is sort of what our ancestors actually did, right? That they never sat in chairs. They worked hard all day long. They were, you know, jacked like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger because they were lifting, you know, huge rocks over their heads, you know. I mean, there's a lot of very, you know, just kind of comic, sort of almost comic book-like thinking about the, the Stone Age, which is, which, is, which is, you know, part of what I was trying to, some of the myths that I was trying to um, uh, sort of uh, debunk in the book. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. It's sort of kind of the the noble savage idea comes up that that you know it, it, you know we think of people Stone Age people or people who still live as hunter gatherers as these superhumans, and they're almost different than us. And it's hard not to to think that because the the lifestyle seems so different. And so these are you know superhumans, and we're just now weak weaklings that that don't do yeah. anything that's related. Yeah, I call that the myth of the athletic savage. You know, it's a kind of a variant of the myth of the noble savage. This idea that 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 civilization has somehow contaminated us, and if we weren't, you know, didn't have running shoes and Gatorade and you know Garmin watches or whatever, you know, whatever you might think of, that we would naturally sort of get up in the morning and you know run, you know, you know, just be able to run ultra marathons with ease. That's just not true. Um, and um, and it's not only demeaning to the to 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 non sort of, you know, Western cultures, uh, kind of 
otherizes them, primitivizes them, whatever term you want to use. But also it, it makes people feel bad. I mean, there's a, I, 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 I invent a term in the book I call people who nag and brag about exercise. I call them exorcists, right? And, and, and um, there are various forms of exorcists. Um, uh, and one of them are the sort of the folks who, who kind of um, uh, sort of make somehow uh, the rest of us feel there's something wrong with us if we don't naturally you know want to run ultra marathons or swim around manhattan or bicycle across the u.s or whatever um as if somehow that's a natural normal thing to do yeah and it, I, you know i've sort of gotten into reading about just reading about ultra ultra marathons you know 100 200 mile races that seem you know i don't know it's kind of a niche thing that's getting more popular and it just seems like when you hear about that, you think, well, oh, if there, if there are people who are running 200 miles outdoors, like in a couple of days or however long it's taking, then, you know, a marathon even just seems like just tiny of tiny, you know, yeah. percentage of our natural potential. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the fact of the matter is humans can do amazing things, but that's <laughs> or it's normal. Um, um, you know, all power to people who want to do that. That's great. I mean, you know, I like to run marathons, but I don't like to I don't pretend it's normal to run a marathon, um, um, especially at, at as fast as you can. That's also that makes it even more abnormal. Um, but you know, we do all kinds of things today that nobody ever did. We read. We, you know, we, um, you know, we spend hours in front of the computer. We we do all kinds of strange things. Um, um, that doesn't make them good or bad. Um, um, and and we have the potential to do astonishing things. But um, uh, but but let's let let's stop being sort of judgmental about it. One thing that I, I've started doing now after reading Exercised is I, I try to consciously get up out of my chair every 30 minutes. And I have a very bad habit of sometimes I get into the zone or whatever I'm working on that I'll just sit for hours. And it feels mm. great because you know, I feel like I'm working more efficiently, but I just neglect moving. And then I'll you know, go exercise at night after I'm done sitting for like you know eight or 10 hours a day. So I try to get up every 30 minutes because of all the problems you describe that happens with just sitting and it doesn't get fixed when you, you run for an hour in the evening. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've kind of demonized sitting. Um, and it turns out that, you know, people in, you know, non-Western, you know, non-industrial setting you know, contexts also sit a lot, uh, you know, cause you can't exercise all day. You can't be physically active all day. Um, and sitting is the normal way to, to, for a human being, whether whether you're a farmer, a hunter-gatherer, or a, a modern industrial person, to to take it easy, but um, but there are healthier and, and less healthy ways to sit. So uh, it turns out that um, you know sitting aside, if you sort of control for sitting time total, people who sit who interrupt their sitting more frequently um, uh, do better. So if you interrupt your sitting every 10, 12, 15 minutes. Your um, your predicted health outcome is actually much better than if you if you interrupt your sitting every thirty minutes, um, just you know regardless of how much you sit, and that's because it turns on all kinds of <clears throat> muscles, you know genes and muscles, it uses up fats and sugars in the bloodstream. It has all kinds of effects that we still don't entirely understand that are that are positive. So uh, yeah, we can we can learn um, how to sort of sit better without demonizing sitting. Now, I used to sit on a yoga ball or an exercise ball instead of a chair, and I did this for years. And I, I thought, you know, it would help with my posture since I would, wouldn't have a back, you know, and, and sort of 
give me that natural fidgeting because you have to constantly balance. Uh, you know, is there any benefit to to not using a chair with the back or sitting in a stool? You mentioned these different types. Well, there, of... <laughs> I mean, maybe. I mean, you look. There's not a lot of great data on this, but um, um, you know, we 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 find that sort of more active sitting, like squatting or you know, sitting that without a seat back, for example, does require to use some muscles to hold your body up, and that has some benefits, some metabolic benefits. So yeah, it might be it might be good, and certainly having a stronger back is is uh, is good. Um, uh, a lot of people today don't have a lot of back muscle endurance, largely because we sit in chairs all the time that that with seat backs that cradle our backs, and so you don't have to use any muscles. And although posture itself is not that associated with um, with 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 lower back pain, one of the most common problems of people in the world, um, uh, we've sort of confused cause and effect. And people who have weak backs tend to have worse posture. Um, so it's kind of it's it's sort of like a it's like almost like it's a talisman of having a weak back. So it's not the posture itself that causes back problems, but people who have weaker backs tend to have um, you know are less able to maintain uh, postures that um, that we identify with 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 uh, with back health. And this might be a human centric question to pose, but it seems like you know to get a big brain to be you know one of the smarter species, I suppose. Um, you need to have this sort of gas guzzling sort of setup, you know, high metabolic rate, you need calories for a big brain, seems like that's going to favor animals that are more efficient when they move and not want to move as much or, you know, conserve calories when they can. But that got me thinking about whales and dolphins, which made me wonder for, for animals that live in the sea, who have to move, it seems like they, they have to move more than we do. I wonder, does that, you know, is there some kind of correlation there? Maybe they evolved bigger brains before they went to the sea. It's just sort of my brain went on this thinking of, well, it's, it all gets very complicated, right? Um, um, in general, uh, you need to have a high, you know, to, to evolve a relatively bigger brain, you have to overcome some energetic constraints, right? And, and, um, um, you know, sea animals do have a, a benefit over land animals in that they have buoyancy to keep them up. So they can, they can, and also there's a lot of very high quality resources in the sea. You can eat fish basically and get a lot of energy. So it's, it's very complicated. You know, there's no simple relationships. Um, um, humans, the way we, one of the ways we pay for our big brains is that we eat really high quality food and we cook it and we process it. So we got a lot of energy from the very limited amount of time we have to spend in order to get the food. Um, so that's beneficial, but we also we also invest a lot of energy not just in brains, but in our way we grow. I mean, it takes humans a long time to grow their bodies so that they can be, you know, reproductively mature, and we have offspring. We, sp we space them out um, um, less actually than our ape cousins, our ape ancestors. So we, you know, humans in natural fertility populations, you know, hunter gatherers tend to have babies every three years as opposed to like every five or six years if you're a chimpanzee. So that takes more energy. Uh, so we have a very complicated energetic strategy, uh, life history strategy, we call it, that requires a lot of energy. Um, it also requires a lot of fat. Uh, so we, yeah, we're, we're, we're special species in all kinds of ways when it comes to energy. Yeah, and you know, and a couple of things that sort of help us run. You go over in the book, sweat glands being sort of a major one, which I I've been fascinated with for a long time because it seems like we're the only animals that sweat like we do, and it seems 
that you would see this adaptation more. I mean, we live on a relatively warm planet, <laughs> so. Yeah, but seems- you know, we get what we had to give up was fur, and fur is really useful too. And um, uh, so, uh, so look, uh, sweat glands evolve in in old world monkeys. So old world monkeys, chimpanzees, humans, we all have sweat glands, but we have a lot more sweat glands. But we also abandon our fur, which of course acts as a natural radiator. So it's like a hat. Um, and it also protects us and it's, you know, beautiful and all kinds of other nice things. So, so we gave up a lot to be essentially furless creatures, as, as sweaty creatures. The, the, the advantage it gave us was the ability to dump heat um, during long, just long-term, you know, endurance activity in the heat. So, um, so yes, it's, one of, it's another aspect of our unique physiology. And, you know, in, in doing all the, all the research that you do, how has this changed how you you know, the, your daily habits, you know, what, what recommendations <laughs> would you make for others? Well, you know, I try not to be too prescriptive. I, I think, uh, you know, to be honest, it's not too complicated about, you know, you know, just a little, you know, you know, physical activity, you don't need to be doing marathons and stuff. I mean, I think we, I think we're too prescriptive. We medicalize uh, exercise too much, but, uh, but of course, you know, you can't study this kind of stuff without it affecting yourself, your, oneself. I mean, I, 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 I myself got it, got it, got really into serious long distance running because I was studying the evolution of running and it sort of affected my own running. And, um, and then I started trying other kinds of running like barefoot running and things like that. And I've certainly tried to be, I don't, I, you know, like I'm, I'm a typical runner. I love to do you know, endurance stuff and I don't really enjoy doing weights, but I, I, I recognize the importance of weights and doing strength training, so especially as I'm getting older, so because and, and the book sort of, you know, emphasized that. So I, I'm trying to do a better job of you know doing weight training a few times a week and and that. So yes, of course, it's impossible um, uh, not to not to have you know to study these things without them affecting you. Yeah, and on your Wikipedia page, it, it calls you the barefoot professor. I think is, is <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. It made me curious because you know, in the book, you, you go through your sort of journey into running, but, you know, the, the, it's interesting, the, the barefoot part caught my attention. So how, how do you get into barefoot running? You know, what's the, the practice or the lead up to it? And how do your feet adapt? Well, I mean, I, I like to, to try what I study, right? So when I've gone to various parts of the world and see how people use their bodies, I like to try what they do, right? I'd like to try to carry things and, you know, and, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, participant observation i think it's you try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes literally and so um um when we started studying barefoot running um i uh you know back in gosh that was starting in around 2005 is when we first started really looking at the data and sort of looking at i just thought i'd try it myself and i discovered i liked it um but you had to be careful you can't just sort of take your shoes off and, and throw them away you know if you're not used to it you have to build up calluses but also you have to build up strength in your feet and you, you run in a different way you land more on the ball of your foot than on your heel and so you have to build up muscle calf strength and achilles strength and you have to try to transition gradually and learn to do it properly and if you don't um you hurt yourself um but you know um but it was fun i enjoyed doing it um and um the problem is that it's been sold oversold like a kind of panacea and um um you know, a, a one-size-fits-all solution, and 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 that was a that was a problem. Yeah, it seems you know, I, I think 
for me, you know, the thought of running barefoot outdoors just seems terrifying because my feet feel like they would just get pierced by everything. And the, 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 the process of that calcification that needs to happen, I think, for the, the hardening of your feet seems scary or daunting or, or difficult to build up. But that's a that's an example of just how disconnected you are from your your normal body. I mean, people from most of there's still you know hundreds billions of people on the planet who don't wear shoes and they have calluses. It's the most normal thing to have. I mean, most animals. When I go walking with my dog around the block, she doesn't have shoes on. She's got calluses, right? There's nothing strange or weird about having calluses. It's the reverse. Not having calluses is strange and weird. And and the fact that today we're so terrified of taking of our shoes to go running. It's just, to me, evidence of just how out of touch we are with our bodies. But then again, you don't need to then make people feel bad about it, right? That's the reason I entitled the book Exercise. I think we make people nervous and anxious and upset about physical activity um, because we're so judgmental and commercial and, and you know, and, and medicalized about, 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 the, about the topic. And I think really an evolutionary anthropological sort of perspectives can really um, help us you know, take a much more rational, sensible, non-alarmist, non more compassionate uh, uh, approach to to how we use our bodies. One thing that I, I've noticed, I've noticed especially in India when I've traveled there, I've seen people who've not worn shoes their entire lives, and one thing that I've that sticks out is how spread out the toes are. And I don't know if this is from not wearing shoes or a well, particular sure, yeah. work they do, but yeah, if you don't ever wear shoes, your toes, shoes have what's called a toe box, which, you know, affects the shape of your foot. So yeah, so people who are barefoot tend to have some slightly more spread out toes, uh, you know, but I'm not sure that, that there's some amazing advantage to having that. There are plenty of people who wear shoes and they do just fine and they live nice, long, happy, healthy lives. So, you know, the, <laughs> I per personally, I prefer shoes with wider toe boxes because I just don't like having my toes all scrunched up, but, um, I mean, you know, Hey, you know, people also until recently never read either, and um, and um, and reading has its own negative effects on the body. Or you, the list is very long. So we all have to sort of pick the costs and benefits of all the things that we do. So I have two questions for you. One is something that I I, I sort of didn't even know was a thing, but during quarantine I was doing these you know at home exercises, body weight exercises, and it was anterior pelvic tilt. So I, I got into the rabbit hole of exercises to fix that, which is, I guess, when your hips sort of move forward, which is unnatural. But I always thought that, oh, this is a, a proper posture and and so on. So all these exercises to kind of straighten out your lower back. And, and reading, reading exercise, I thought, this seems more like the position you take when you're squatting, when you're sitting in a squat. And you know, I, I was like, do I need to correct this? Am I, <laughs> so I had all these questions like you, like you described that it's hard to figure out what to do, you know, what, what's the right thing to do? Well, we, there's not, you know, there's a lot of people out there who tell us what we ought to be doing and a lot and posture is an interesting example. I mean, a lot of modern ideas about posture come from the 19th century when the chair, when some modern industrialized chairs became prevalent and, you know, there was a, there's a German orthopedic surgeon named Stiefel who got very upset about and all that. And he opined that people should sit the way they stand. But that's not how people who don't have chairs sit. <laughs> it's completely made up. Um, and, um, and I think, again, you know, we've confused cause and effect. And, 
and an anterior pelvic tilt has become a sort of a, a very common sort of argument and among um, among um, among some folks. But uh, you know, we, I, we need to be skeptical about all this stuff and look at the data rather than you know jump to conclusions. And uh, um, I'm not I'm you know I'm not uh, I'm not strongly convinced by some of these arguments. Put it that way. Anyway, look, it's a minor thing. You know, what we really should care about is the fact that the you know the vast majority of Americans are physically inactive, um, and um, uh, you know, something like 25 percent of Americans get 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 a get get the minimum level of physical activity that's recommended by every major organization on the planet, which is 150 minutes. Now that's a somewhat arbitrary number and the book explains why why that's a somewhat arbitrary number and where that number comes from. But the point is that's just 21 minutes a day of, the, of moderate vigorous physical activity. That's not a lot. And, and uh, you know, and if we can get people to just get, get to that, just very minimum level of physical activity, boy, we could really improve people's health uh, a lot. So let's let's focus on like the really important things like just helping people, you know, walk briskly for 20 minutes a day or, or swim or run or play or dance or whatever it is that they like to do, rather than all this, you know, relentless, you know, opining about pelvic tilt or, you know, what shoes we should be wearing or whatever. It's, those are all distracting us from what really matters. And what I like, one thing that I, I, I sort of, as someone who goes to the gym or runs regularly, one thing that I liked was I, you know, I appreciate more the regular activities that I thought were just no calories. You know, I was like, oh, the gym time is when I'm burning calories, but like washing the dishes or going for a walk or just picking up, you know, cleaning the house, th those kind of things can add up, you know, and it's just, it's just a matter of sort of maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, physical activity is physical activity. Yeah. Exercise is just a kind of physical activity. But if you don't, you know, if you're if you're working all day long doing stuff, you know, if you're, if you know, if, until recently, most people had jobs that involved manual labor. That's physical activity. You don't need to exercise if you're doing that. Um, the, we have a very strange world now in which we've reversed things, right? So now it is. Uh, it used to be that only the very wealthy, the elites, could have, you know, could, could be not physically active, and now it's it's reversed because now so many jobs require commuting and desk jobs and sitting, and you know, people have multiple jobs and and they don't have time to exercise, right? And it's only wealthy folks uh, who have the ability to, to go to gyms and pay for gym memberships or have a treadmill in their basement or whatever it is, right? And the pandemic has really exaggerated that, right? Because you can really see who who now has the wherewithal in order to have to be able to, to be to exercise uh, during 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 the pandemic during the lockdown. It's been it's been you know whether you live in a neighborhood where there are sidewalks where you can actually do that safely. Uh, so I think we need to understand that. Um, um, you know, we we just need to kind of help each other more, and um, um, and that involves understanding there are many ways to be physically active, and and uh, let's focus on what what we can do. Well, I think that's the main takeaway that I got out out of out of the book is to to be more active. You know, it sounds simple, it sounds dumb, but I realized how much I sit, and I'm someone who thinks I you know I I run, so I'm okay, you know, and I realized that so much is inactive just in a chair sitting. yes but hold on hold on you may you but i mean do you know how much you sit a day i've started to keep track and i 
I think it's, you know, it's sort of around six to seven hours. Well, that's a perfectly a normal amount to sit. So again, you know, there's nothing wrong with six, sitting six to seven hours a day. This, again, this is, this is how we get exercise about exercise. It's, that's actually a very low amount compared to most people. I mean, look, hunter-gatherers who are, you know, very physically active, way more than most people, they sit around 10 hours a day. So, so stop beating yourself up about sitting six hours a day. That's, that's actually very little. Um, 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 and, and furthermore, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's actually, when you look at the epidemiological data, it's not work time sitting that's associated with negative health, harms, health outcomes. It's, it's, it's leisure time sitting, right? So if you sit at your job all day long and then also sit getting to your job and sit after you get home and, you know, watching TV on the couch or whatever it is that you happen to be doing, that's the problem, right? It's the, it's, but, but, you know, sitting at a desk for, for eight hours a day, you know, isn't going to, isn't, isn't, isn't the kind of it's not like smoking, which we call it, right? Sitting is this new smoking. I mean, that's obviously absurd, right? Um, and um, so let's just kind of relax a little bit about this. There are better ways to sit, and there are more healthy ways to sit, and we can all do a little bit better job. But, 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 um, but, yeah, we should start being a little less, you know, exercised about all this stuff. Well, I appreciate your time. I don't want to keep you too long, Doctor Lieberman, but I. I, I could ask you questions all day because I I, I I find it fascinating. And I I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, at least I try to look at things from the, the evolutionary perspective and, and why why do we do certain things? Why why do we do things now in the modern world? Where might that have come from? And, it, and a lot of times I think, you know, many of us fall into this trap of, you know, in the Stone Age, everybody was healthier, stronger, faster, doing everything and we're just the complete opposite. I think it, you know, you've helped kind of tie, tie in those connections and how we can sort of evolve in this modern world. Cause I don't think we're going to be sitting less in the future. I think it's going to just, it's going to be more difficult to stay active. I think as it seems like, well, hopefully we can do better. <laughs> it's not too hard. It really isn't. Thanks very much again. And um, I'll leave a link to the book and where everyone can find you down in the, the show notes. But I appreciate your time. My, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the podcast. And thank you, Dr. Lieberman, for being my guest. If you're listening to the podcast and you really enjoy this episode, be sure you leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to the Fox Nomad podcast. It really helps get the word out. But for now, enjoy the rest of your day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.